Okay, great. So let's go ahead and jump in. So this has been an interesting month, and I will tell you my prediction for 2024 fell right on the 1st of January. And what I mean by that is uh, with our focus on real estate today, the my, my view on where we're going with residential has shifted, uh, definitely particular to Utah region. There's obviously states that aren't going to fall into this uh, category. However, uh, I think 2024 has marked maybe the bottom for the real estate market uh, to the point that I'm even have shifted and bought my own uh, piece of real estate for myself. I've gone out of the renting phase. I'm going back into the purchasing phase. And I think that uh, we've kind of seen a bottom and we're going to go over that a little bit later today. But let's go ahead and jump right in. I've got lots of content to cover today, lots of exciting things to review. And I'm going to start with this video, or excuse me. Yeah, I'm going to start with this video by... Uh, Randy Howell, which is, it's a little dated, but it's just so good. And the, what I'm trying to highlight by sharing this with you is the value of your mind when it comes to trading. And Randy Howell is a, he's got books, he's got classes, he's done interviews way back, you know, about 10 to 15 years ago, where he talked specifically about how important it is to have your head screwed on straight when it comes to um, day trading. And I, I just can't, I have a hard time finding an argument that works against this. It, Your psychology has everything to do with the market. And this little quick uh, two-minute video is really a, a, an imperative highlight to how well, um, how, how well the market will teach you about your psychology, maybe even create an awakening for you. So it's kind of a fascinating thing I've been dealing with as a personal coach and day trading coach over the last few years. One of the things that I've uncovered is how the markets is going to teach you about your limiting beliefs. And so here's a real quick clip from Randall, or, or excuse me, Randy. And I want you to pay close attention. To, so to set you up in your listening, I want you to pay close attention to the last like 60 seconds of this as he really gives what I would call a, a nugget around how valuable your mind is when it comes to investing in the markets. So here he is. Well, if you're trading the markets, you're dealing with uncertainty every day. There's never an absolute trade that you're confident in. Uh, and the ways to deal with that, and our guest today is Randy Howell. He's a trading psychologist. He's going to talk to us about that. Randy, thanks for being here. Thank you. Well, there's always uncertainty in the markets, of course. We're never totally sure a trade's going to work out before we get into it. What's the difference between that and actually having a, a real fear and, and that holding us back from success? Well, once you recognize that uncertainty is the rule, if you see yourself as a surfer on an ocean, on a wave, you know, the wave is, could care less if you're there or not. And it's really uncertain until you develop the skills, the edges, to be able to surf it properly. Same thing applies in trading, is that uncertainty is the rule. However, if you're walking in and triggered to fear, rather than, the, say, the risk of uncertainty, what happens is suddenly you start thinking fearfully. You start finding fearful solutions. You start hesitating. Or you might do impulse trading to get out of the trade. And the uncertainty... You need a different emotional state. You need to be able to build and develop impartiality, a sense of courage, and a sense of powerful discipline. All that lives within you, and you can grow it so that that dominates the thoughts in the mind. It seems that the best traders I've talked with are able to make really good trading decisions even when there's a lot of uncertainty and they're not exactly sure what the outcome will be. What's the difference for them? What have they done to be able to do that? Well, it may be they've been phenomenally lucky and born into families where learning how to deal with uncertainty was encouraged. Most of us do not grow up in families that deal with uncertainty well. We end up trying to be perfect. We don't, we're trying to avoid mistakes. So what happens is a really good trader moves beyond focusing on loss, focusing on making mistakes. He's looking at probabilities and is into curiosity. And he's developed the kind of what I call the impartiality to evaluate. But he's also developed the instinctual ability to be able to intuitively take his hunches to a different level because he's not accessing the intu intuition from something like fear. He's doing it from a, a serious, a different part of himself. And that is what emotional regulation and the development of what I call the heroes within the self can actually bring forth. 
All right, so if I haven't grown up in that environment where I'm, I'm used to dealing with the uncertainty, is there a way I can kind of develop that? Oh, absolutely. We're all born with these instinctual potentialities. It's learning to develop the courage to be able to confront what I would call our psychological demons and to disperse them and to replace those beliefs with much more powerful beliefs that it opens, whatever your beliefs are, that's what you're going to find. And if you're going to look at an ocean, like if I were to get on a wave in Hawaii, I would, I would, uh, I would end up in fear. Okay. Yet I've seen 14 year old boys on 50 foot waves having a joy ride. Does that mean necessarily just getting in there and actually doing it, actually trading and, and working through that? Well, there's a wonderful thing about trading is that most of us spend a lifetime avoiding our psychological demons. In trading, they're going to stalk you. They're going to find you. And trading offers the incredible environment of getting in tune with yourself, developing yourself psychologically so that you're a better human being in a lot of domains, including trading. But you have to understand, trading is going to provide a platform that's going to give you a scalpel to look at your psyche, and you're going to have to reorganize it to be a really good trader. Randy, thanks for your time. It's been my pleasure. You're watching the moneyshow.com video network. All right, guys. I know that's a little dated, and uh, one of the things that I really value about what uh, was said is if you haven't done a lot of self-help work, if you haven't done a lot of like awakening work or shadow work, I mean, there's so many different terms around this, but if you're not someone who's taken on personal development, there's nothing that's going to be a catalyst for your awakening outside of trading. I think uh, what was said is because money is so emotional, because we have so many beliefs around money, one of the things that I find fascinating is the markets, when a trade goes against you, you immediately start to have the worst parts of who you are, the worst traumas about your past show up immediately. And so it's really, it, you could see it almost as a blessing. Uh, maybe not at first because your trade results may not be that great. You might make bad investments. Uh, the fear might kick in and you start reacting to your fear. And obviously your trades are going to be a reflection of that. However, um, once you start to get the success in the markets, it's likely a direct, it's likely directly correlated to your psyche and having to work through a lot of your limiting beliefs, specifically around uh, money. And so that's why I like to do this segment in the beginning is because a lot of people think it's about skill. A lot of people think that the way I'm going to get access to wealth has something to do with a tool or some type of, of machinery that's going to get me from point A to point B, when really... A lot of it has to do with who you are, like your way of being, your inner position that shows up before you even start your trading. And so that's why it's really great to have habits. It's really great to have uh, regiments around your trading. But more importantly, like what are you doing behind the scenes uh, to work out? You know, like a, an NBA player is in the gym three to four hours a day. They're with trainers. They're like constantly look, looking at their health. And like, what is that regiment for you as a trader? And Instead of lifting weights, it's more of like lifting the weight of your psyche. It's like lifting the weight of your old traumas, lifting the weight around your fears uh, so that going into the future, you don't have those things trigger. And as you guys know, the fear of missing out could be one of the greatest uh, impairing factors in terms of your results. Now, I want to share just really quickly, after trading for almost 15 years, actually over 15 years now, I want to share with you a archetype system that I developed to help with this. And this is coming out in my book in April. And this is what I call, I call it the four archetypes. And it's the path to authorship. And you can see on the far right-hand corner, we have kind of this illustration or this face that represents like what it looks like to be an author, right? And authorship is the key to success, whether it's day trading, whether it's hitting some type of end goal, and it could be around anything. It could be around your relationships. Maybe you have a health goal that you're trying to hit. Um, maybe there's something spiritually that you're you know, under-accomplished in or you're trying to get more reconnected with yourself. It just doesn't really matter what the topic is. Authorship is the archetype to and towards success. It's the level that will bring the most power to getting what you want, to drawing or attracting the thing that you're looking for. Now, dreamers 
and wanderers get what they want, but it just takes a lot more time. And this is really the difference between high performers and those who kind of watch and look from the, the bleachers and wonder, how is it possible that this person is moving so fast? In fact, I I say this pretty often, but I think all of us can identify someone in our life or someone close to us that got access to this type of power within like a year, even they went from, you know, we don't, we didn't know what archetype they were, but they, it seems like they went from zero to hero in like 12 months. And it's like, how did this happen? And the reality is, is something shifted in their beliefs, something shifted in both their beliefs and their inner position that moved them to authorship, that things just started clicking in and they went from, you know, we call it zero to hero, or they went to authorship and whatever it was they, they were doing, like almost overnight. And we see this happen with musicians all the time. We see this happen with uh, actors, uh, business performers, CEOs, uh, certain businesses in and of themselves. Uh, it can also be entities. It could be ideas. It, it really isn't just uh, narrowed down to an individual. And so over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to break down a way that you can identify, am I a dreamer in this? Like when it comes to money, when it comes to investing, when it comes to my day trading, am I stuck in the dreamer realm or am I stuck in the wonder realm? And we don't want to be a beggar because that means you're lacking everything. You know, uh, it means you don't have access to any power and really your ability to get and move forward into anything, you're inept. It's not possible. But most people have a bias and I'm actually on the wanderer side a lot of people find themselves on the dreamer side. And just to, for sake of time, let me just tip you off a little bit what's coming next week. The wanderers, like myself, typically lack in the knowledge base. We, we're very action-oriented. And the way that the scale works is we're either, we either have a really strong inner position or not. We either have really strong beliefs or not. And when it comes to self-improvement, this thing that we were just hearing about is imperative to your success in trading. There are two camps, and a lot of professional coaches only focus on one camp. You're either really strong in the belief camp, which you'll you'll see in a lot of psychotherapy. It's like, well, what are your thinking around this? Like the thinking grow rich guys, uh, the Napoleon like Hills, uh, that was all about like what you think becomes. And it's like, yeah, that there's a lot of truth to that. However, if your inner position, your way of being, the thing that shows up and arises in the moment that your belief shows up, like the thing that that moves you towards action, if that's lacking, then you're going to have the same problems. And there's actually a lot of performance coaches that like this is their thing. They don't care about the beliefs. They're all about action. They're all about accountability. They're all about uh, doing certain things, affirmations that get your body and your mind moving uh, towards something. But what I've found is most professional coaches don't have both. They are either hyper-focused on one or hyper-focused on the other. And the problem is, if I were to send you out on your own just with this and go, go find yourself a coach to get you to be a better day trader, or to get your money situation figured out, or get your health situation figured out, you actually have a bias. And your bias is you will typically pick someone that has a focus in your strength. And so my book actually talks about this, about how we are actually geared to lift with the arm that's stronger, not the weak one. And so if you're typically a wanderer like me, you're going to go find a wanderer coach and they're just going to teach you how to do more. They're going to teach you how to have more action. They're going to teach you how to have more performance, more accountability, when really what's wanted is more beliefs, more expansive beliefs. It's like, whoa, whoa, Matt, like sit down, calm down, get your beliefs in order. Is there something new here that you're not seeing? Is there something around how this works that you're not understanding? You know, I'm the guy, a, a good example is I'm the guy that buys the Ikea, Ikea like uh, furniture set and I ignore the instructions and I just go for it, right? I've got so much confidence that I can do this that I don't even go through the instructions. The next thing I know, the ladder's on the wrong side and I have to undo it. Where the dreamer will read the instructions <laughs> twice, will like Google the best way to do this, may even Google like how to hire someone else to do it. And by the time they could have done it themselves, uh, they're still thinking about like how to do it. And so that's really the difference between the dreamer and wanderer. And the goal is authorship. So over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be going over tips, tricks, 
little psychological hacks on how to move from dreamer to author, how to move from wanderer to author. And if you are bigger, and some of us are in certain areas of our life, how do we move from bigger to dreamer, bigger to wanderer? So looking forward to that, looking forward to my book coming out. That way we can just hand you the whole thing. You guys can get the download. Uh, but as we develop and get closer to that launch date, I'll be giving you basically the highlights, the best parts of my book uh, over the next couple of weeks. So let's go ahead and move on to my next segment. This moves us into our next section. We're going to be talking about, uh, we're now moving into our real estate section. And I want to start this conversation with something that's happened. One of the key pieces that has my sentiment around what 2024 is going to look like uh, in terms of residential real estate for 2024. And so let me bring this video up really quick. So this was, uh, I believe, CNBC. And this is uh, John Lavlo. Uh, he's a real estate extraordinaire, real estate, residential real estate extraordinaire. And he uh, has a lot of data and knowledge around builders, like new construction. And so here's uh, some insight from him. Great data. This is just a quick three-minute uh, segment, and then I'll provide some feedback here on the end. KB Homes beat expectations for Q4, but revenue and profit were lower from a year ago. Our next guest, however, says the company does stand to gain. Some outsized share uh, going forward remains optimistic about the builders. UBS analyst John Lavallo is here at Post 9. Talk about uh, the sector at Holt. It's good to have you, John. Welcome. Thanks, Carl. Um, is it about selling prices? Is that why we're seeing what we're seeing this morning? Look, I think the KPIs across the board for KBH were above expectations, frankly. The one area that was a little bit soft were orders. Now, they were up 176% year over year, so not too soft, but a little bit below expectations. Keep in mind, interest rates or mortgage rates went up over 8% during the quarter, right? So because of this, KBH slightly trimmed trim their top line forecast for the year. I think the market's sort of digesting that today. You make an interesting point about sort of this lock-in effect that we're seeing regarding rates and how we kind of saw it in the Volcker era. Is yeah. that right? How, is it, how did it play out then versus how you think it's going to play out now? You know, interestingly, it's new home sales are recovering faster this time around than we did during the Volcker years. And really, it's a function of the home builders being very creative in their financing offerings. So they're offering mortgage rate buy downs and things of that nature, which is really sort of smoothing out demand and, and bringing a lot of uh, people to the table that perhaps would have been challenged from an affordability standpoint. Well, one of the biggest surprises is that they spent much of last year while the Fed was raising rates and mortgage rates were shooting higher going up the stocks because of this inventory problem. So is it harder to, to pinpoint the right valuation now that activity and rates are coming down and activity is going up because that backdrop is one of strength? It's a great question. And look, I think that there's a very compelling argument to be made here that these stocks are way too cheap to the market. They're about 13 turns cheap to the S&P. Think about it. Balance sheets have improved significantly. There's an opportunity for outsized market share gains. Margins and returns are structurally higher going forward than they were in the past. And I think that the opportunity for consistent cash flow throughout a cycle is something that we're going to see. These stocks are very different than they were in the past and very different companies, frankly. Are you expecting... Uh, existing supply to come online this year it, it, to surprise either up or down? <laughs> it's the big question. We're modeling officially existing home sales increasing about 5% year over year. I think it's important to keep in mind that 80% of mortgages are struck at 5% or below, a 60% or 4% or below. So I think we would need to see a pretty meaningful pullback in rates to see a glut of supply come back. And unless this supply coming back to the market is unruly, if there's something that happens in the economy that causes a disruptive flow, I think it's fine. The market right now is dysfunctional. We need this supply to come back. What's your year-end uh, uh, forecast for, say, the 30-year fixed? Is it, has it have a six? You know, look, I mean, that's, that's above, above my pay grade. Yeah. Yeah. However, what I would tell you is our forecasts are saying, look, we're going to keep rates about where they are today. We're a little bit more conservative than the street on margins because of that. If we do see rates come down, which everyone seems to be thinking is going to happen, and I hope it happens, there's going to be upside to our numbers and street numbers. So the reason that this clip matters so much is new construction is an indicator uh, typically for residential growth. And right now, last year was pretty bearish on new construction. There was a lot of home builders that were trying to navigate these new high rates. And what we're dealing with now is this kind of lock-in on rates, potentiality around uh, rates dropping for 2024. In fact, most analysts, John didn't say this, but most analysts 
are factoring in about three raid drops for 2024. And if that happens with the amount of supply that we currently have in the residential market, which I'll show in my charts later today, with the amount of supply that we have, it positions new home builders in a really great place because there just aren't uh, there existing homes. There aren't existing homes for sale on the market and supply is radically diminishing. Even with interest rates where they're at, even with affordability where it's at, because there's such a high percentage of home builders, or excuse me, of home owners who own homes at a mortgage rate at 4% or a mortgage rate at 5%, people are not going to be letting these go. And so a lot of them have cash in their homes. They're not interested in dropping it. They'll likely rent the house and buy a new one. And it's really positions new home builders in a place that's pretty bullish for 2024. So my prediction with this, and there's going to be some more data that I show you guys here in a minute, we've hit, according to me, this is my prediction going to 2024, the bottom of the residential real estate market in the U.S. Now, that doesn't mean, and we're going to talk about some of the best and worst markets that I would have my eye out. This does not mean that because I said this, that you're uh, in a state that you should just start buying a bunch of real estate. I have some states, in fact, 10, that Zillow's helped me identify that I would not touch with the 10-foot pole. And then there are some states that uh, are really strong, very bullish in this bottom that we're finding in terms of uh, residential real estate. So kind of bad news if you're a new home buyer looking for a great way to get into a new home. Uh, it's... I don't see prices dropping. Rates should make things a little more affordable into 2024's end because it takes about six months, guys, for when we drop a rate for that impact to happen. Uh, and that's likely not going to happen until the end of the year. So if you're looking to buy a new home, you're the first time home buyer type uh, person, it's likely you're going to have to wait till the end of the year to see rates actually drop, even though we'll get the announcement likely the first quarter of this year. So segmenting or moving into my next piece, I want to share with you this article that came in from CNBC. These guys are hitting the real estate market and covering it really well. And I want to share this article that I found that highlights a topic that I don't want you guys to miss. And that's along with this new demand that we're seeing from new home builders, mortgage application demand jumps nearly 10% the first week this year. So we had a, a pretty large drop in December, which is typical to uh, like these kind of curves that we have dependent on like timing in the year. So like this winter idea, you know, people putting their their nuts in their uh, cave, so to speak, or in their little uh, nest, that, that really does happen. The amount of buying that happens in the real estate market definitely cools down in the winter. But to have this type of jump happen in like midwinter, is not common. And to see a jump in mortgage demand it is in the first week or two weeks of January is not common. We typically see it in February, oftentimes beginning of March, because as soon as the, the snow melts and the grass comes up, that's when you typically see people kind of come out of their homes and start looking at houses again. Now, this was an interesting piece on this. There's also some data on here that I wanted to show you. Oh, applications applications for mortgage to purchase a home rose 6% for the week, but we're still seeing 16% lower from the same week a year ago. So even though we've seen an uptick from, you got to get last year was bad. Like last year we had major drop-off in supply, major drop-off in like uh, people being able to buy. We saw homes sitting on the market way longer than we've ever seen. And so compared to a year ago, yeah, it's we've, we're 16% lower than normal, but we're starting, it's like we're finding that floor again and the, the uh, amount of demand for mortgages just started to tip up. And I would guess we're probably at the bottom for demand also on uh, mortgage applications, like people that are applying for these mortgages. Let's talk about hot markets. It's kind of the hot or not uh, segment of the podcast. I want to show you this uh, image really quick. Let's see how quick I can get this up. And this was a Zillow report that I, I thought was really helpful. And as I run across these things, I like to show them to you from the source. But this uh, was a news article that really articulated Zillow's 
response to the hot markets, like the markets that are just killing it right now in the US and then the markets that aren't doing so well. And so Zillow ranked these and this site did a really great job of just taking them out and listing the top 10 performing top 10 worst to be in. So I want to go through these with you because just because I have this prediction for 2024 and you guys know, you know, obviously it's not financial advice. You have to do your own homework. Even though I've got all of those disclosures, just because I've said this doesn't mean that maybe your state's an exception to the rule. So let's go through this. So top hottest markets right now in the US, this is all 50 states, the metropolitan areas inside of them. The top ranking is actually in New York and it's Buffalo, New York. It is the hottest market in the US right now. And if you're anywhere near this market, I would not be worried about 2024. Anything that you've bought is likely rising in price and anything that you'd likely buy is going to continue in that direction as we're kind of hitting a bottom in the US uh, real estate market, residential real estate market to be uh, more clear. Now, along with Buffalo, the same sentiment but diminishing uh, follows these top 10. So we've got Cincinnati, Ohio, lots of stuff in Ohio, by the way, Cincinnati, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, Indianapolis, Indiana, Providence, Rhode Island, Atlanta, Georgia, Charlotte, North Carolina, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, Orlando, Florida, and then Tampa, Florida. So you can kind of see that there's some trends in these states. Obviously, Ohio is doing really well. Florida has also got a couple of metropolitan areas that are doing really well. But if I were in these markets or looking to maybe expand or diversify my real estate portfolio or is maybe looking for the first place to buy, I would obviously be looking for a, mar a market that's hot. Now, there's some alternative ways to look at investing, and that also can be the coolest. Like there are, to give you an example, there are traders that will literally look at a stock only when it's had three days consecutive losses, meaning like it's gone down three days in a row. So this the reason I like showing the coolest markets is you also might be finding a bottom. And so if we're hitting the bottom in the real estate market, the ones that cooled down the most have the most potential for upside. The ones that went up the most have the most potential for downside. And that was what happened during the last two years. We saw this massive fall off uh, in markets that got overcooked. Now, the coolest markets, markets that I'd be a little hesitant to buy in right now, there might be some continual cooling that goes into like halfway through the year, maybe the full year before we see uh, the market kind of bottom out. Austin, Texas. In fact, Texas, you can see on multiple levels here, is one of the worst. So I would be avoiding Texas in terms of buying like a new home or if you're looking to buy for the first time, you might wait six months to a year for the prices to start to bottom out. And then you've got things like Birmingham, uh, Alabama, San Jose, California. By the way, there's a couple places. I'm surprised that, uh, I mean, San Jose kind of covers the Bay Area, but I'm surprised San Francisco is not on here. Uh, Baltimore, Maryland, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, New York, New York, Minneapolis, Minnesota. What's interesting to see here is how New York has literally neighboring cities that one is the coolest and one got ranked the hottest. So it's interesting that just because you're in a state doesn't mean that your neighbor, your county line may define a completely different market. So you got to keep an eye on this. Minneapolis, Minnesota, Houston, Texas, San Antonio, Texas, and then New Orleans, Louisiana. So here would be, if I were looking at this from an investor standpoint, or maybe a first-time home buyer, or maybe like you're looking to move into a new metropolitan area, here's how I'd be looking at this. If I was looking at the hot markets, I wouldn't be concerned. You're likely in a bull run. You're likely in the trend. And as you guys know, you want to trade the trend. So this would not be; these would not be bad areas to be buying in. If I was looking at the cool markets, I might be looking at more of a timing issue. Like, oh, maybe I'll wait. Like if I were going to buy in Austin, Texas, it's like, well, maybe I'll wait six months and see if like the house next door or the neighbor that or the neighborhood I'm going to move in, I'd keep an eye on it month to month and just watch for like, is the price and the trend of the market starting to go up or down? And one of the easiest ways to kind of time these markets, and I'll show you the charts for the US in a second, but one of the easiest ways is just to watch supply. How many homes are on the market? And right now, the reason that these markets are going cool is because supply is going up. We had, during COVID, kind of this massive influx of people moving in to these kind of outside 
uh, regions and territories for whatever reason, some of them major cities, sometimes not. And they moved into these areas. The market got over pumped up and now we're seeing a massive cooling in Texas. Uh, by the way, it was one of those places that people were just fleeing to. They were leaving neighboring states, moving into the area. Uh, we saw a lot of that here in Utah, but we actually kind of saw our drop off last year where we had an overcooked market because of COVID. People from California were pouring in. And then what happened last year, the cooling off happened because we just got, frankly, we got overcooked. And so I think that's what's happening right now in Texas. I would say that's probably what's happening in Alabama, definitely California and a lot of areas I'm a little surprised to see Wisconsin on here uh, because I do a bunch of real estate out there, but Milwaukee is kind of the major metropolitan area. Uh, so again, you just kind of have to know your areas and these are the ones I'd be watching out for. All right. So let's go ahead and move into our next segment here. All of this is going to kind of compile into a major theme or consensus around what's happening in the world of real estate. I'm going to bring up our charts and for those of you who are joining us for the first time, this is a this is very data driven. This can be radically boring if uh, you're not someone who likes to uh, look at data or look at charts. Uh, but I'm going to try to make this fun, and I'm going to try to make this digestible, so that as you're looking at this, the charts actually make sense, and maybe look at it from this place. If nothing else, this is something or a piece of data that you could take to your family, take to your friends, and share some little insights and kind of become the genie of the family. When I got involved in trading, just to give you some, some context around what I'm, I'm saying, after about a year or two of watching the markets and seeing how they moved and watching the patterns, I could go to my family and friends and be like, this is what's going to happen in the market. And with about an 80% accuracy, be right. And they thought I had some some crystal ball or some like magic power or something like that. And it, it just wasn't that. It's just I got into the data. I got into the details of the data. And having that access really gave me power, gave me freedom. It gave me the ability to not make the same mistakes that the general population, frankly, was doing. And instead, I had an edge. And the same thing is, exists in real estate, whether you're renting, whether you're buying, whether you're investing. If you got access to the data, data is power. And it not only makes you look fun and good and, you know, like an expert in front of your friends, uh, there's actually buying power. There's investing power in this data. And so as we go through this, just kind of have that, uh, have that ear, have that listening as we go through this. This is something that's for you. This is for your future. And real estate is probably one of the first and most popular ways to start and begin growing your wealth. So if you're like, well, I want to start investing, man. I want to start growing my investments and like uh, positioning myself to a greater level in terms of wealth. Real estate is where to start, guys. Most aside from the stock market, there are more millionaires made in the market in real estate than any other place. So it's second to the stock market. Uh, much safer, much more collateralized, and much lower risk, I would say, also than the stock market. So Having said that, uh, you can follow me on my YouTube. I've got my YouTube link on here. I've got my LinkedIn also on here. If you guys ever want to me like message me or send me like ideas or things that you're seeing around real estate, I take a lot of feedback that builds these podcasts. Feel free to reach out. I always respond uh, to people that send me comments. And let's go through this. So let me kind of share the highlights. What we're looking at is the very last data point. This is over, obviously, the course of multiple years. And we just got last month's data in. And so what we're looking at this last little star on the far right. And you can tell median listing prices, like this is the median price nationally, hasn't really changed much. You can see just visually from the previous month, it's gone down a little, meaning that the median listing price, how much the median home price that's listed Overall, in the entire U.S. country, like the whole U.S., actually dropped like by a fraction. And if we go to the actual data, I can show you exactly what that number was. It went from 59, so 597,000 to 594,000. So it dropped, you know, roughly two and a half thousand dollars. So not very much, not a significant enough drop 
to really be getting my attention. Uh, and the way that this is consecutively kind of flattened off has also been one of the reasons I'm kind of calling a bottom. You can typically see in the trends, kind of these ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and ups and downs. They're kind of these seasonal ups and downs. And I would typically, like we did last year, like to see a more down drop during the season. And the fact that we're not seeing that big of a drop from November into December is showing that we have a supply issue. There is a problem with how many homes are available. And as you guys know, there's no supply. Prices have to come up. So there's the median list price. Let me see what else was interesting on here. So average listing price went up. So although median went down, the average listing price actually went up and it went up pretty significant. And again, this is another indicator I'm looking at that's kind of predicting like this might be the bottom. We already hit, for those of you who think we missed the bottom or or weren't even aware that prices were dropping in the US, look at where we were mid-time last year. Like we were significantly lower. We're almost, the average listing price was almost, I would say $15,000 lower than it is currently. And so we've already in a way hit this bottom. And if you were to take a, a chart and kind of like draw a line, a median line, we're kind of back in our old trend that was started in 2018 through 2019. We had this crazy COVID outlier way up here, but we're kind of back in our normal trend. And so I would say we're we're in the bottom part of that channel, if you if you guys know what I mean. We're in the bottom layer or we're hitting that support where that there's kind of when you throw a ball at a wall, it's going to bounce back. And we're kind of, if you're to draw a line, we're kind of hitting that support and bouncing off of it. Price increase uh, amounts have dropped to almost an all-time low. So we're also not seeing homes increase in price. A lot of that has to do with seasonality. But in correlation with that, we've had one of the largest drops in price reduction counts. So homes that had to drop their price just like dropped off a cliff. There's no homes dropping prices anymore. And I would even say going into January, I would imagine that this drops almost to an all-time low where they, just home sellers don't have to because there's just no competition. There's no neighbors selling their house across the street. So you really don't have a lot of options to buy. So why do they need to drop their price, right? Going into median listing price per square foot, this hasn't changed much. Pending ratio is getting back to where I like to see it, uh, where it's I'd like to see it closer to zero, but we're kind of back in the zone on the pending ratio uh, that's common. And that has to do with uh, listings versus sold homes. New listing count, this is the trend that scares me, guys. This is, this is why we, I was hopeful for new home buyers that last year this trend was going to keep climbing and we were going to keep seeing new homes coming onto the market, but we're not. We're in a low high. We hit our low low last year, and you can clearly see the trend is declining. Now, what does this chart mean? How do I digest this? New listing count is how many new homes are coming onto the market, and we are at an all-time low, and you typically see that in December, but where are we going to go into January, February, March when homes start to sell off and there's just no inventory. My prediction is next year, we will be below 2000. We will hit an all-time low in new listing. And if we have the least amount of inventory that we've ever seen in the real estate market, what's going to happen to prices? You guys know it's going to go up. Active listing count, seeing active listings also starting to drop on a, a large scale. We saw them start to climb up and the reason was interest rates. They were staying on the market longer, but we're actually starting to see that drop off. And to see this drop off in December is a counterintuitive, it's a counter market move. So we typically don't see this happen uh, in December. Total listing count, seeing it drop. Pending listing count, seeing it drop. And then median square foot, people are getting less for more money. They're having to spend more money for less of a home. And in median days on market, we are seeing a climb. Like what's getting listed on the market is starting to climb. But this, uh, you can see this data point is pretty consistent to past years. And so I'm not that concerned about this in terms of like my prediction for 2024. So that wraps up the data piece for US uh, residential real estate market. 
this does not include my predictions for commercial. I think we're in trouble when it comes to the commercial market. We're going to see a lot of fallout this year. Uh, just mark my words on that. I'm hoping there is one. I'm going to throw one disclaimer out there. There is one piece of data I'm watching really close when it comes to the residential market. And you got to keep your ears on this if you're like trying to time the market. There's one piece that could throw a wrench in all of this data. And what it is, is Congress is actually putting up a bill right now to ban hedge funds from buying residential real estate. In fact, in some metropolitan areas, like even the, our state right next to us in Las Vegas, in some neighborhoods, 30% of the residential real estate is owned by these hedge funds. And so imagine Congress passes a law, and here's what it looks like, by the way. They're modeling a bill right now that says, if you are a hedge fund, you are banned from buying any residential real estate ever going into the future. And if you own residential real estate, you have to offload it within the next 10 years. Now imagine the waterfall effect if that law gets passed. Hedge funds aren't gonna slowly offload their real estate over the next 10 years. They're gonna sell it the moment that bill passes, why? because they don't want to be on the negative side of other uh, hedge funds selling off their real estate and driving the price down. So that is the one factor that could make things more affordable uh, in the U.S. However, um, I don't think it's likely. There's too much money in hedge funds. There's too much lobbying money in hedge funds that I just don't see. I mean, it's unfortunate. People like to say like there's power in the people and there's voting power of the people. Unfortunately, there's not. The people that really make and influence the laws are lobbyists, and lobbyists are funded by these companies with lots of money, hedge funds having to be one of them. So I don't see it being likely. There might be a bill that gets passed that looks like they are doing something to make it easier for you guys. Uh, however, it will be it'll be a facade. Uh, it won't be real. All right, now let's jump into my favorite part of our podcast, the money mishap section. I'm going to bring up a quick segment from Tony Robbins and... The reason I'm bringing this video up, so my money mishap section is really a, a it's a fun opportunity to look at common mistakes that humans make, investors make when it comes to money. And I'm going to be looking for like really funny things and stupid things that people do. But I found this video that Tony did that really encapsulates like the biggest mistakes that you as an individual and and household like average household makes when it comes to investing and he does a really great job like grabbing this idea in less than 60 seconds so let's hear from tony and then i'm going to share with you uh, some thoughts and feedback on this with a piece of data that i think you guys will find fascinating you've got to decide the most important financial decision of your life and that is to become an owner and not just a consumer mm -hmm. if you have a i see a bunch of iphones recording this right now <laughs> but if you've got an iphone and you don't own apple or better yet you don't own the index of the s p 500 the best 500 companies you're making a giant mistake because you'll never earn your way to financial f fortune but if you will just decide there's a percentage of my income that no matter what, I'm gonna have it automated. I'm not gonna see it, it's gonna go straight to an investment account. And I don't know if it's 10 or 15 or 20, those numbers sound gigantic to most people. Even if you start with five and build, that income does not go to anybody else and then you put that into compounding. When I interview all these investors and say, what's the biggest mistake Americans make? He said, they all said, they don't tap into compound interest. They know intellectually a little bit what it means, but they don't do it. Mm -hmm. They don't do it consistently. So what do you it do? It basically just means that the profits you make could go back into the investment. You keep reinvesting and it keeps growing, but it grows geometrically, right? Mm -hmm. Awesome. So I love what Tony said here. And the example that he gives, I think is really a, it's, it's a great parable for life. Do you own the product or do you own the company? Like think of the things that you own, like the car that you drive, the reason you bought it the reviews and all the work you did to like make sure you bought the right car or the phone that you use. How many of you guys are using uh, Android versus Apple phones and you buy one versus the other for a reason or the type of computer, or the type of technology or you know everything from like equipment that you use to the apparel that you wear. Are you a consumer or are you an owner? And he highlights that really early on. How many of the things that you buy and wear you own, meaning the stock, like you have a piece of that company. And it's a really fascinating idea that most people are consumers. They love the product. They love to buy the product. But when it comes to owning the company, 
they won't even buy a share or a fraction of a share. And there's no excuses anymore. There used to be like 10 years ago where, you know, you couldn't buy a stock unless you had $1,000. But at, at this point, you can buy micro shares of almost any stock for like 10 to $15. So there's really no excuse. And the reason that Tony brings up this example is the power behind compound interest. Most Americans under leverage their ability to allow the markets, their ownership in the product rather than being the consumer of a product to really work for them. And he says, you know, whatever it is for, for you, but to take a percentage every month, 10%, 15%, 20% of whatever your earnings are and make your budget work so that you're always putting it into the market so that the money and the market can start to work for you. Now, I brought up a piece of data. So if you're like brand new to this and you're like, Matt, I just, I want to do this. You know, I could put $10 away a month. I could put $20 away a month. I, or you really want to go for it and you want to get your budget dialed in. And for every dollar you bring in, you put 10% into the market. These are uh, ways to get rich, by the way, ways to grow wealth. Where would I start? Well, let me let me give you a, a, an enormous tip, something that I was actually at a Tony Robbins event when I met with, I think it was called America Best Agency. And they got up there and they were telling all these CEOs like, hey, you are the fiduciary of your 401k and your retirement accounts for all your employees. And like, here's what that means. And I was like, well, what, yeah, what does this big fiduciary word mean? It means you have the legal right to do what's best for their accounts. And then he shared this piece of data that I'm going to share with you. And I was like, crap. Well, now I have to do something about this. Now I have to do something to actually make sure that my employees and myself are getting a better return because I'm the fiduciary of this account. I'm the person that's kind of responsible for making sure the investment's going the best way possible. Well, check this out. What I want to share with you is like, where should I put my money? Should I give it to someone that says they're an expert? Should I give it to this fund that's like, pretending, or I, I shouldn't even say pretending, they're usually pretty educated investors. Should I give it to this person or this entity to make the trades for me? Or should I do it myself? And I'm going to make an argument that I heard at not just a Tony Robbins event, but Motley, Fool's, Motley Fool is highlighting it in this article also. Where should I actually do it? And here's the data. And this blew my mind. I This is relatively new to me. And I had been trading for 15 years and I heard this five years ago. And when I pulled it up on the charts, I was blown away. 92% of active large cap fund managers underperform the S&P 500. Let me have that sit in for a little while. 92% of people who charge you money to put your money into the market are underperforming you just putting your money straight into the S&P 500 by itself. And that's over the last 15 years, guys. So what am I actually saying? You would be, you would have been better off to not have given your money to anyone, anyone. I mean, with a 92% chance, there's only 8% of active large cap fund managers that did better than the S&P 500 over the 15 year time. 8%, you would just... The odds would be it'd be better just to put the, all your money, any of the money that you're putting in your investments, just straight in the S&P 500. And why? Well, because of this. Consider the stock market is largely controlled by institutional investors. It is the vibration. It is the consensus of large institutional investors. And so to try to beat what the best investors are doing, not fund managers, but institutional investors, to try to beat them, these these brainiacs, these guys from MIT and Harvard and Yale and all these like Ivy League schools, to think that somehow you're going to outperform them by giving your money to some like fund manager or like even your 401k that does this for you is ridiculous. So worst case scenario, if you're putting your money into an account, don't have it be diversified. Just have it go straight into the S&P 500. Best case scenario, don't pay someone 2% a year to just basically do that for you. And by the way, most of these fund managers have a large percentage of their funds in the S&P 500. That's the funniest part about this is like they just take your money, charge you 2%, and then they put it in the S&P 500 anyways. And yeah, they diversify it. They're like, well, 80% of it goes in there and the 20% we like make it look like we're doing our job. But the reality is 
you'd be better off just putting it in yourself. And how hard is that to do? You could set up, and I'm not an introducing broker. I have to disclose this. I'm not making a recommendation here. But you could go to companies like Robinhood and set up an auto payment that just comes out of your bank account every month. Or every time you get a paycheck, you can just take a percentage of that, send it over to Robinhood, put it into the S&P 500. And based on this data, you would be outperforming 92% of the experts out there that say that they could do a better job. So there's your tip. The fools, I mean, guys, isn't it crazy how how dumb we are? Isn't it crazy how easy we can have this kind of cloak put over our eyes because we have some guy in a white t-shirt and a tie telling us like, oh, I'm an expert. I, I could take your money and you know make sure it's managed right. How how easily we're a fool by this kind of outward appearance when the reality is and the data shows this is not rocket science. In fact, it's less than rocket science. The guys who are supposed to be experts are doing worse than just clicking a button and putting it straight into the market yourself. So there's our money mishaps segment uh, for the podcast. And then we're going to go into my favorite part here. We've got a couple minutes left. We're going to do our trade review. And we, we're we on a run right now when it comes to our gold and S&P 500 trade review. So let me bring that up. And we're going to go through this really quick. Gold has been a lot of fun. I'm going to lead with gold. So this is our gold chart. If you guys have been watching gold price, we said last week after this breakout that we were pretty bearish in gold and we were right. Uh, last Friday was right here. You guys, I'll mark this for you. This is what we were looking at. We said, based on this new channel and the breakout from last week, we predicted uh, bearish movement. I kind of drew my circles of where I thought that was going to be. Sure enough, we stayed below our ceiling. We had price movements Monday and Tuesday into here. Then I kind of drew out, where was it more likely to go? Is it more likely to stay in that trend or to break out towards the upside? So I made my colors a little darker here to show it definitely into Wednesday, Thursday would be down here. And then maybe we would come up into here in a breakout. And sure enough, today being Friday, uh, the market is showing some signs of breaking this trend. But we had probably two to three really great bear bearish or short trades that you could have taken on gold. And uh, you, again, this is just one of those fun things you could show your family and they think you've got some crystal ball. So there's our gold. Let me give you guys my prediction going into next week. This gets a little tricky and I'll share why. Because we are in a new trend. We've got a breakout and so we can't depend on a channel which increases the risk of going into next week trading gold. So if I were if I didn't have to, I would kind of be avoiding gold right now. But we're probably in a trend that looks something like this going into uh next week. But because of where the price is, we're kind of sitting at this 2050 price. The price broke it, came back down. So we're, we're kind of back under the ceiling again. We're going to see a lot of pressure holding the price down here. Let me just give you some indicators of where I think we could go. But just to be very straight with you guys, this is not a strong indicator. This is not a strong prediction going into next week. Where last week, it was like I was really strong in my opinion about gold going bearish, and that's exactly what it did. So you kind of have to know that going into trading, like, oh, is, is today a good, better, best? Is this an opportunity where the market and going into next week, this is a strong signal, medium or light? I would say this is a light signal. Let me kind of give you an idea where we're likely going to be. I'm going to draw this in as a four. It's very likely into Monday, Tuesday. We're going to stay into this price range, but we'll stay above the trend line going up. I think bullish versus bearish for sure. It's very likely we could have some sideways momentum after Monday, Tuesday. And so I'm going to kind of draw some wide circles because of the uncertainty I have going into this and to like to be able to predict today based on not having a trend for Wednesday and Thursday next week, uh I'm going to be a little cautious. So these are kind of our places and that's why I drew them in light. These are our places I would say like it's kind of a coin toss after Wednesday. It could go either way. What I would watch for is if it lands, if like Monday, Tuesday starts to land above this 2050 
So the 2050 price, it's going to stay above. If it lands below, it's going to stay below, but there's going to be mounting pressure because this kind of trend line is going to create a bunch of pressure coming in to the 2050 price level, uh, which is either going to cause a breakout towards the downside. And if it does, you have lots of room all the way to almost 2000 guys. So that'd be a great bull or excuse me, bearish trade. If it goes long, I'm going to probably stay out of the market because it's the uncertainty and the amount of distance uh, until this trend sets up until like Wednesday, Thursday, I would be avoiding this. Let's go into uh, the S&P 500. So here's our chart last week. Here's our predictions. We said that it was going to go uh, short first. We said it would continue into the trend first. It did that. And then come, let's see, this was Friday, Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday. Come Monday's breakout, it just shot the charts. Like everything in the market shot up. And this is kind of one of those events where after Monday and a fundamental news announcement comes out, it changes everything. And that's why we draw these uh, channels in like this. We draw these in so that when you've got a breakout, you know that everything that we just did doesn't work anymore. So I'm going to show you after Monday's breakout and this channel happened, this doesn't matter anymore. This doesn't matter anymore. And this doesn't matter anymore. So had you been there with me on Monday after this breakout, none of this stuff we drew uh, last Friday would have mattered. But now we are in a very different trend. And you guys can remember last week, I was kind of light. I was saying what I said about gold about the S&P 500, where I'm actually going to say the opposite. Now we're in more of a strong prediction pattern on the S&P 500 because we, now we have a trend. We actually have something solid that we can work inside of. Where early we had just kind of had that breakout and we were kind of dancing with this uh, kind of this doji that is typically a retracement candle, as you can see highlighted in this big circle. So what are what's my prediction going into this next week? Definitely bullish into... Uh, next week on the S&P 500. And it's going to want to stay in this range, guys. It's going to want to stay below the 4,800 level. And it's going to want to stay in this uptrend. So it's going to want to play right in here. And so Monday, Tuesday, this is where I would be. Bullish is the move. You've got plenty of room. So if you're setting your take profits... You obviously would want to be like, see these wicks, the top of these wicks here. You're going to want to stay within those wicks. So let's stay, like put a price target at like maybe 47.96 or 47.95 so that you're not playing with the edge of the market. And uh, make sure you put your stop loss, you know, either below the 47.52, which is our support, or you could even put it just below this channel. And remember every day that this moves on, uh, you can move your stop loss up as each day moves forward second to tuesday if i were to predict where we're going to be like wednesday thursday i don't think we're going to break this so i would say you're likely going to be here which is going to be really tight or we're going to be just below this where there'll be a break in that channel and so i'm gonna give these equal weight but really my consensus is over the week, sideways, first couple days bullish. And once there's some pressure, we're either going to have a breakout, the likelihood of it breaking all-time new highs. I just, it happens. I don't often like to predict them because I'm wrong. So I'm going to say sideways, say into the end of next week, you're going to stay in between 47.52 and 48.12. So as you guys get to the higher side, shorting the market's going to be your play. As you get to the low side of this channel, uh, buying is going to be your uh, position. And is there a likelihood of us breaking out of this trend? Yes. Yeah, very high likelihood by like maybe late Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, it's likely that the pressure will mount and we're going to break out of this uptrend, this really small uptrend that we're in right now. All right. So there's our gold and S&P 500. Just to do another quick review on gold, I am bullish, but my... Like if I were to give this a grade scale, this is like a two, three out of 10 in terms of how strong I feel about this trade. S&P 500, I would give this a seven out of 10. I think we're going to have bullish movement and then sideways pressure. So my prediction on 
the S&P 500, I feel a lot better about than gold, where it was kind of reversed last week. And that's what happens. All right. Well, thanks for being on with me uh, here once again on the Market Pulse podcast. Thanks for your guys' time and attention. And if you have any questions about any of the things that I go over or any feedback of things you'd like me to cover, uh, don't hesitate to put comments in the comment section on my social, or you can actually reach out direct uh, to me on LinkedIn, and I always respond to those comments. Thanks so much, guys, for being on, and we'll see you here same time, same place uh, next week. Thanks. Matthew Pulse signing off, Market Pulse Podcast. We'll see you. 